Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am excited that you are joining me today for an interview with my new friend, Chris Tuff. And Chris is the best-selling author of The Millennial Whisperer. His dynamic approach to attracting and motivating the next generation in the workplace has had him featured in Forbes, Fast Company, Fox TV, Cheddar News, and now this podcast. And Chris is also a partner at 22 Squared, a full-service advertising agency based out of Atlanta, Georgia, where he oversees content marketing and partnerships, as well as the employee engagement consulting division. And uh, we talk a lot about employee engagement and employee experience on this podcast. It'll be interesting to get into that. Chris, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Thanks so much, Andy. Yeah, happy to be here. That was a mouthful. I I'm sorry for uh, how many big words we have in our description of <laughs> Hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll apply some of the aspects of the book of what we're trying to change. Yeah, and I shortened it since uh, you know whatever was put in there, but it, it's quite all right. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. I'm really interested to get into this. It's interesting. I think I have kind of a love-hate relationship with this idea of uh, the multi-generational workplace and talking about generations because I don't like generalizing about people, right? Everybody's an individual. Everybody's different. Uh, and yet things are changing in the world of work. And you know, different generations have been changing that. The millennials are the, the largest 
percentage of the workforce. And uh, you build this book, The Millennial Whisper, as the practical profit-focused playbook for working with and motivating the world's largest generation. So let's start with a little bit of background on who you are and, and how you ended up writing this book. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just say in response to that, I totally agree with you. You know, I was born in 1980. And so I'm right on the cusp of Xer and Millennial. And yeah, same here, 1980. Yeah. I think it actually arms us to really understand what the next generation is going through. You know, and I think we can all attest to how fast the world is changing and how much the cell phone really changed everything. But my favorite quote of since publishing the book is millennials aren't the problem. They just expose all the problems. And for the first time ever, we have a generation and a group of people that are willing to walk without another job if their needs are not being met. And you know what? That's a good thing because they are the catalyst towards the changes that need to happen within our corporate environments to do what my whole purpose is. How do we bring more empathy and more connection into our worlds? Whether that be with my daughters, whether that be with my my wife, my friends. Mm-hmm. And what really triggered this book for me was, why don't we have this in our workplaces? Why do we not have more of this? And what are the, some of the things that we can do differently and apply to our day-to-day lives that will make our work feel less like work. So that's my quick kind of tirade there. But you know what kind of got me here was uh, my lucky 65th job interview after graduating from Vanderbilt. It took 64 failed job interviews to figure out that maybe I should actually be interviewing for a job that I was passionate about. <laughs> and uh, I fell into the kind of digital environment in 2003 at a place called Moxie Interactive. No one even knew really what Interactive was. And in interviewing, I felt like, wow, I can actually... You can get paid money to be creative. Like That's an anomaly. And so I fell into kind of that. uh, We grew from 13 employees to 450 pretty quickly over a few years. And I I had a, a variety of jobs, you know, and it was everything from account coordinator to account executive to I was a creative copywriter doing the copywriting. And then I kind of fell into somewhere in between right around the advent of social media. And I was told by our boss, Chris, that if I could get a viral video, she goes, Chris, do you know what a viral video is? I was like, no, what's that? And (laughs) something that gets everybody sick. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, because this was before YouTube. So I was right. thinking like, is it something that like triggers some sort of chain events or like, it's like, no, if you get a million views of a video, it's a viral video. And if you can get a, a viral video, one of our clients, Verizon Wireless is looking for it. If you can prove to them that you can get a viral video, then we'll give you your own department all around trend spotting in this new kind of new world of social media. I was like, all right, bring it on. Because I was just about to get engaged to my wife. And you know how it is when you have that ring burning a hole in your pocket. I was going to wait until we're both identical twins. And we were set up because we're both identical twins. And I wanted our twins to be there. And I started thinking, I was like, wait, maybe this can be my viral video. So I filmed my engagement of me running down the streets of Atlanta. And I went from pretending to sprain my ankle to popping the question. So she goes from basically laughing at me and making fun of how clumsy I am to crying and hysterical in a matter of three minutes. And it was a scale of emotion that the internet really hadn't seen. 
And so I put it on ChristopherTuff.com. Once again, this was before YouTube. And I get a call from the server company. Four days later, we were on our way down to a wedding in Palm Beach as I'm on my way to Hartsfield Airport. The server guy's like, uh, Mr. Tuff, you are currently getting 100,000 views of your video every hour. And it's doubling on the hour. Whoa. What credit card do you want us to put, us up, put this on? Because you had to pay for <laughs> bandwidth back then. Right. And I was like, just let her rip. So, you know, 7 million people ended up watching this infamous engagement. Good Morning America flew down and it got us on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It got out of control. And I always use that as the example of, you know, that you're in a passion zone where ridiculous things ends up ha- end up happening to you. And uh, that was really my first kind of, I think, taste of what success, quote unquote, felt like in terms of where passion and purpose and profession can overlap. So and then I've always been surrounded by younger people. You know, I mean, being in digital advertising, you're always around kind of younger generations. And I've always thrived with them as a leader and and also learning from them. And uh, it took really two and a half years ago hitting rock bottom where I'd lost sight of my family and what was important. I was traveling all over the place. I was Heading up business development for our firm, um, 22 Squared Advertising, once again. And uh, I took a month off. And it was during that month off that I, I changed my metric of success from beating my brothers in the game of life, which is a horrible metric of success, to success being judged on a daily basis. So when my head hit the pillow, was I successful today? Did I have the impact I intended? And luckily, two and a half years later, almost three years later, I've been successful every single day since then. Uh, The other piece that I really focused on during that time was I'm going to go from being the tip of the sword to being a servant leader, to really coaching these people and spending time and making them better humans and working with them on personal problems as well as professional problems. And I had inherited a group of 30 millennials. And uh, it was seven months after really starting to find my jam with this group of 30 millennials that I was on an executive retreat in North Georgia, average age being probably 45 years old. And these, I introduced myself to these men and I was like, I don't, you know, I don't really know what I do at my agency anymore, but I'm kind of like the millennial whisperer. And Tommy Breedlove, who was leading the trip, he turns to me, he goes, you better write that book. And then people started talking and they're like, wait, so Chris, what kind of stuff do you do to motivate these guys? And I started talking about some of the tactics I use. And they were dumbfounded, almost like, what in the hell? You do that stuff? You guys, you talk about your feelings in front of your people? (laughs) When was this? Around what time was this? So this was two years ago. So it was seven months into kind of overseeing this group. Okay. Of, it was influencer marketing and content marketing, which right. is kind of where I grew up anyway. So it was pretty natural. But it was less of me selling or, or doing the thinking and more of just me coaching them. I felt like I had a book on my hands and I was introduced to our mutual friend, Nick Pavlidis, who helped me. He goes, you want good news or bad news? I was like, good news. Because I sent him an outline. I was all psyched. He goes, well, 20% of this is good. I was like, okay, that's horrible news. What's the good news? He was like, I think you have a bestseller, but we just got to rejigger this stuff and make sure that you're writing for the audience that is Xers and boomers. Right. So um, the rest is kind of history. I think we've sold something like 40,000 books and we're starting to do some really fun engagements and, and I think have the impact that we intended to 
when I first sought out to write this thing. You know, yesterday we had a huge meeting with a very large multi-billion dollar international company and it already it's getting bigger than I thought it would be. So once again, it's all about impact and I'm yeah. super excited to be in this zone of passion, purpose and profession. Uh, that's awesome. I, I love to see that combination and also uh, such an interesting story and what you talked about changing your perspective and idea of what success is. And I've been there, right? Measuring success by, oh, it's going to be the position I achieve or how much money I make. And I'm always comparing against my friends or my, you know, my classmates because I went to business school. Who's making how much money and what's their job title now to... I've made that shift as well. I mean, success for me is, is being happy in life and not having any regrets. And for both of us, I think making an impact. 100%. And it's so much more fulfilling than just trying to make more money than your brothers or your friends. Right. And I mean, I think we... And we can all attest to this and it's a big part of my book. But what we need to remind ourselves as well as the people that are on our teams is that we've got to stop comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And what social media and technology has done to our brains is massive. Because we do think that there's something more perfect out there. We do think that flying on private jets is the new norm or whatever it is. Like, And I look at some of these people on the team. I'm like, last weekend you were in Key West... This week you're in Denver. This is exhausting. How do you keep up with this? He was like, no, it's all about the grand, baby. I'm like, no. You know, like, no, I share my story about when I, I mean, it's funny. It's my river runs through it story. And it's one of the first things I, I share with anyone that's entering the team. And I use it as an example of what not to be. But I hired a fishing guide when I was in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I told the fishing guide as we were going out to this beautiful, serene, environment. And I said, listen, I want two shots. I want one shot of the trout in the net. I don't care whether I catch it, you catch it. I just want the shot. And then I want me on a video, a river runs through in it like Brad Pitt with kind of the mountains and the river flowing. And this guy turns to me, he goes, you're going to spend 600 bucks on an Instagram post? I was like, no, that's two posts. Three hundred. <laughs> Let's go. And this guy was so disgusted. And I'm like, guys, I get it. It was a low point. But this is what we live by. This is the world that we're living in. I call it the Pinterest station of our generation where yeah. you know, the first day of school, it's exhausting. Abigail's first day of school, you've got like the perfect picture with her favorite snacks yeah, and yeah, TV yeah. shows. It's like, we just got to let go a little bit, right? right? And I think we're all hustling for this unattainable thing where it's like, you know what? I think this is everything that I ever dreamed of. And... um once again, those are muscles that we need to build over time. Yeah, I, I've talked in the past about the the comparison trap and heard people say compare and despair. And one of the other things I remind people all the time is with social media is I, I love it. And I love seeing what people have going on. You got to remember not to compare your whole life to someone else's highlight reel because totally. they're posting the pictures of that great catch on that vacation, but they're not talking about the fight they had with their wife while they were there. Or you know the the fact that it actually rained most of the day and they didn't get to get to go out as much as they wanted to, or all the the challenges that are going on, you have no idea. You just see the nice car, the nice vacation, or whatever, and, and you're just comparing yourself to that, which is a total trap. Well, I made a I made a commitment. Uh, there's a men's group that I started that actually was kind of the instigator around the book itself. But uh, I committed that I'm going to buy a flip phone this afternoon for my vac. I go on vacation on Monday, nice. and I really need to disconnect. Dan Miller introduced me to this idea that he follows where he has free days, he has focus days, and he has buffer days. And his goal is to have 160 
free days this year, which means he does zero work. I was like, wait, what's that mean exactly? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like, I haven't had a free day in 19 months since really starting this book journey. So yeah. I'm getting a flip phone. And if people need to get in touch with me, I'll give them the number and I'm going to disconnect for a little bit and nice. to really reconnect with my family. So that's my commitment. You heard it here first. So I've got to do it now. Yeah. And to be fair to Dan Miller, he's like 70 years old. He's built a totally. business. He's kind of earned it, right? If you know, and he know. sold like 2 million plus copies of his book. And yeah, 48 Days to the Work You Love. If you haven't heard of him, great book on finding the career and work you love. But let's get back to your sure. book, Chris. You said something early on that I want to get back to because a lot of my listeners are in talent development and developing, managing the people that are in large companies and, and figuring out how to create that great employee experience and, and develop their people. And you said, for the first time in history, we have a generation that is willing to walk if their needs are not met. And I know what you're talking about, but I'd love to hear you expand on that sure. and why that's so important when you're managing, running a business or managing and developing talent in the world today? Sure. One thing that I talk about is out of the gates, we need to, I think, look at this generation as two separate generation. So we're talking about 1981, 37-year-olds to 1996, 23-year-olds. That's a huge generation. And you can attest to this, right? I mean, Andy, you're, you're on the cusp like me. We had beepers in college. Yep. And these younger 23 to 27-year-olds even, they were handed an iPhone with a Snapchat account at age 13. Right. What that does here is different, right? So I think that's one thing to keep in mind. The other big variable that was introduced was when in their lives 2008 hit with the recession. So older millennials were actually in the marketplace. So they're actually more in tune to becoming entrepreneurs or self-starters because they were forced to do that. Whereas younger millennials saw their parents lose their job. So they're actually looking for a place to hang their hat. As you get into that younger millennial set, the 23 to 27, 28-year-olds, they're not looking to really jump ship as quick. Even though at the end of the day, everyone is willing to walk if their needs are not being met, right? So I wanted to make sure that I get that differentiation of what makes these generations, I think, a little different in the nuances. But a lot of people come to me and will say, Chris, are you having a problem retaining your millennials. Like, what's up with these guys? Like, they just hop around. And I say that it, there's two sides of it, right? As a leader, it's up to us to introduce the fact that there is no perfect job out there for them. Right. And I call, I call it my 70-30 rule. And that's on the first day, I will sit down and I'll put everyone's job descriptions down. And I say, what's in your 70% zone of passion excitedness, like what gets you fired up? Let's figure out what that 70% is. The unfortunate side about life is that 30% of life sucks. 30% of your job is going to suck. And for me... Not on the gram. It's all good. Exactly. For me, it's anything in Excel, right? Like yeah. anything in an Excel document is my 30%. And that is the harsh reality that we need to, I think, instill in our people and to avoid them going and trying to hop ship in order to to seek something that's not out there. So I do think that even though they are willing to leave if their needs aren't being met, it's up to us to remind them of when they're doing that stuff, when you actually identify what's in their 30% suck zone, when they're doing it, they're like, oh, well, this is just that 30%. And if you connect it to the purpose of like, this is part of what will get you to or allow you to continue to do the things that you love or get you to, then, then it's worth it. But if they don't know why, 
they need to know why. If they don't know why, then that's what they're going to leave. Exactly. And so, you know, a lot of people don't quit their jobs because they don't like their job. They quit it because their bosses suck. Right. And, and the culture you know, if you look at what millennials are looking statistically, they are looking for one, inspirational leadership, two, autonomy, three, transparency, and four, purpose. Purpose being, and I can get into each one of those unto itself, and I'd love to, but um, what they mean by purpose is they want to make sure that what they're doing on a day-to-day basis, especially as you get into younger millennials and Gen Z, that they're giving back to the community and world as a whole. And that it's not just a stock price bottom line or, or some sort of profit margin that their efforts are contributing towards. And uh, I think that our corporations and the way that we incentivize, the way that we mold our leaders do not necessarily emphasize those four things. And it's with that intention that I wrote this book. I love it. I love it. And I think, I often think, because so you know, there's blurs on like what's the millennial, you know, ex millennial. Gen Z, and I like how you divided it up. One way I've divided it up often had conversations with people about is right around 2001 is when people started really getting cell phones. I think I got my first phone, cell phone, like 2002, but a lot of people had them in 2000, something like that. And we also had 9-11. So it was almost kind of like, were you born... Did your parents have a phone, a cell phone when you were born? Right. Or did they not? Or were you born before 9-11? Were you not? And I think for people born after... I've said this many times, like 9-11 is like Pearl Harbor. It's just some distant thing in the past. Whereas to many of us, it's this very real thing that happened. And so it, it creates a bit of a divide that like life is very different growing up that way. And therefore, your expectations are very different when you get into the workplace. Totally. Yeah. I mean, in 2008, also like 9-11 is such a formative piece. And what's a little scary, like you and I have been through it. Yeah. We were in the marketplace. I had a failed startup during that time. And that actually what brought me to my firm now, where I've been for 10 years. But you look at who's entering the marketplace now. We're talking about the 22-year-olds that are just graduating. They don't even know what a recession feels like. Yeah, we're in the longest bull run in American history right now. Right. And they were, uh, I mean, they're six, seven years old when their parents went through it. So they barely remember it. And we're just you know, we do it every day. We're like, when's it going to fall? When's it going to come down? You know, whereas these younger ones, right? They don't know. It's different. Like, we don't even know. They're just now entering from college. They don't know what that feels like. So, what's that going to do in terms of their tolerance for some of these things? Yeah. Because I think we're actually going to find that for the first time, we're going to start seeing even quicker shifts in terms of people staying in their jobs. Yeah, you're right. And and, and it's important to make that delineation because the older millennials... I graduated from business school in 2008, not a great time. And those older millennials graduated from college in 2008. And their career was set back three, four, five years by the Great Recession compared with others. And their earnings are much lower. I mean, for years and had a very... you know, I'm, I'm sure many of them are still feeling that, paying off all the student loans and everything. Yeah. I wanted to go back to uh, you said what millennials are looking for, and this is the largest part of the workforce now. I mean, it is the the way of life, but working has changed. So I know you you talked about purpose. Um, I think you also mentioned transparency. What are the things are autonomy, autonomy, okay, inspirational leadership. Ooh, let's talk about that one. Okay, inspirational leadership. I love talking about, and actually, why I created the millennial leadership assessment is. Inspirational leadership is fascinating because if you ask most leaders, 
hey, Bob, you have 30 millennials on your team. We just read this article by Deloitte, the Deloitte Millennial Survey. And the number one thing they're looking for is inspirational leadership. Bob, would you consider yourself an inspirational leadership? Bob will turn and say, uh, yeah. Anytime I talk to them, they light up. They get so excited. You should see our status meetings. It's insane. It's like, thanks, Bob. And then you go to two people on Bob's team and you're like, Clarissa and Eric, is Bob an inspirational leader? Their first question's going to be, is Bob going to find out? And it's like, no, Bob's not going to find out. And then their, their answer is usually, no, Bob is not inspirational. He's the least inspirational person we've ever heard. And so my millennial leadership assessment is a 360. So your whole team takes it assessment of some of these leadership characteristics, one of which is, I think, inspirational leadership. What's not true about inspirational leadership is I think a lot of introverts or people that aren't necessarily rah-rah, because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty rah-rah and uh, I'm naturally probably seen as an inspirational leader. Uh, to be an inspirational leader, it doesn't mean you have to be rah-rah. What it means is that you need to build your people up on an individual level. You need to connect with them on a personal individual level. And there are small things that you can do to create this environment without necessarily being gregarious or extroverted. And I talk a lot about some of those tactics in the book, but you know, one of the big pieces is, is what I say to any leader today is that when your head hits the pillow at the end of the day and you're not utterly exhausted from rewarding and recognizing your people, you haven't done it enough. And the reason for that is most of this generation grew up with helicopter parents with participation trophies and they were, for most of their lives, anytime they wanted that ego boost, they posted on social media or on Instagram, they got 120 likes. If they didn't get the 120 likes, they took it down and they're able to get that instant gratification. And what that does for the turn of events in terms of what people are looking for is it puts that onus on the leaders to do it. And there are lots of tactical ways that we can push that down, for example, right? Rewarding and recognizing your people. I start all of our meetings with snaps where instead of people going through some boring Excel document about what they're working on, we go and we build each other up. And I'll start it off and say, Meg, I wanted to, or whoever it is that I'm recognizing, you killed it in that presentation yesterday with the client. Like way to push yourself above and beyond. I've never seen a crowd light up. And then we do snaps. And it can be small things. It can be big things. It can be personal things. But what it does is it creates this environment of rah-rah and empathy where it's not just on you. You're creating an environment where inspirational leadership and this reward and recognition is thriving. And I, I can talk about reward and recognition for a while, but those are some of the tactics that I'm talking about as you look at just through the lens of inspirational leadership. I, I love that. And uh, I think you know we often forget how important recognition affirmations are to people often more important than you know the compensation or any of the things they get. They just want to realize, you know, feel like they're being recognized. And you're to your point about social media, a lot of people do look to that and they get those dopamine hits, right, from likes and comments, but it's totally false, right? Because it doesn't actually do anything to fill you up. You need real human connection and real human compliments or recognition, like you said. And you know, conversations like this to truly find meaningful connection and be filled up versus those fake, uh, you know, not taking, I love social media and I support people with likes and comments and I love getting them from other people too, but I totally recognize totally it's a false, it's a dopamine hit that's not really doing anything for you. 
Well, the other piece I say that I think is so important is you look at the importance around connection with your boss. Like one thing I say to everyone is like, you got to throw that whole thing that you can't be friends with your people yeah. out the window. You almost have to be now. You have to be. Yeah. And so not only that, but go follow your people on social media. And this CEO who I met with the other day, he goes, I don't want to share my stuff on social media. I want to live my personal life. I'm like, they don't care about your stuff. What they care about is that you care about their stuff, that you have a vested interest in their lives. So when you come in on a Monday, instead of you asking how their weekend was, go ahead and share the fact that you love the fact that they went to the music midtown and, you know, take a, an interest in their lives. Yeah. You're so right. And I mean, it's funny, like someone was telling me that they, for their 10 year anniversary or something, they were given a bottle of like Oban liquor or whatever. And, um, they're like, yeah, I mean, it's really nice, but I don't even drink. And, what would be so much more powerful is if that boss actually looked at what that person was posting about and instead gave them some sort of reward or recognition around something that they're truly interested in. And so it's like, it's kind of common sense. Yeah. I've been there. I'm, I'm thinking I'm not even millennial, but I've posted something and then, you know, like the president of the company I used to work for sent me something about it. I was like, she saw my Instagram post. This is awesome. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. So you talk about inspirational leadership and we could go down this, this whole path of recognition. And I actually want to talk about being friends as a boss or with your boss. But I think it also connects nicely with transparency. Uh, I've talked about this in the past. I think more than ever, one of the core tenets of leadership now is transparency and authenticity. It was not part of being a leader before. That was not required. It wasn't no. even something that you would even really think about. And now... The old adage of knowledge is power. You can't withhold knowledge, right? People are going to find stuff out anyway. And they really value connecting with people when they're fully transparent with them. But it's hard to do as a leader. So can you talk about that? Yeah. And not only that, but there is a massive disdain from this generation for hypocrisy. Mm. So if you're going to say something, you better walk the talk. And it's kind of fun as I build out this consultancy because it's like, guys, we got to walk the talk. I got to get a flip phone and we got to get coaches for everyone, you know, like, so you got to walk the talk. So I think that just in everything that you're doing, if you're going to say that you're doing it, do it, walk that thing. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting about transparency is I talk to a lot of leaders about this and they misinterpret transparency to be either vulnerable. 
they're like, I don't want to cry in front of my people. I'm like, you don't have to cry in front of your people. <laughs> and the other side of it is, oh, transparency. They think financial transparency. So I've got a, I've read these articles about these companies where they post everyone's salaries. I'm not doing that. And, or, you know, I'm a private company. I don't want people knowing how much money I make. I'm like, that's not what they're talking about. What they mean by transparency is they want you to be putting the dots together for them. And so instead of doing rah-rah stuff in each one of your town halls, talk about the mistakes you made that week and, and what you learned from that. Show that you're a human. And also, more than anything, connect with them on a level that is deeper than just business level. And uh, you know, one of the tactics I talk about in the book is from a friend of mine, Mike Hibison, who's a VP at the Home Depot. And he starts all of his statuses and gives his people the option to talk about their personal life or to talk about professional life. And 80% of the time, they talk about their personal life during that one hour a month that they have together. And it's through that that they develop a real connection. And transparency follows that stuff. And um, I think it follows a deeper connection and it allows you to be more human to your people and them to you as well. Let's talk about that and this idea of being friends with your boss or with sure. your teammates, because that is something that, you know, you and I are the same age. So we came from a little bit of the previous generation. I remember before I got into consulting, I worked in a large insurance company at the headquarters. And I mean, I was always of the mindset that I'm friends with everybody, including my coworkers. But you know, there were some people that always try to keep their work and personal life separate. Uh, certainly, you wouldn't be really friends with your boss. That was that was tough. You saw it every now and then. But to start, think about starting uh, status meetings with personal updates and people talking about not just what they did for the weekend, but maybe you had a breakup or some you know struggles. And I can definitely see the benefits. But that's a huge leap from where things used to be. But now you're saying like it's not just an option thing anymore. You need to be transparent, connect with people personally, and even be friends with the people on your team. 100%. And not only that, it's what astounds me is look at the world around us and how fast it's evolved. Why can't our institutions and corporations make those same changes? And the cell phone changed everything. Yeah. The cell phone, for the first time melded your personal life and your professional life. And you know, you know, we all do it. Well, our expectations are that anyone responds to an email within four hours. That's right. Guess what? When that's happening, a lot of it's when people are trying to live their lives on a personal level, given also the fact of what social media has done to us having an understanding of people's personal lives. I mean, go back to Mark Zuckerberg's whole intention and purpose around creating Facebook was to make the world a more connected place. And you look at that and then also then how that influences the way that we're wired. We expect if we're going to be taking orders from someone, at least let that person be connected to us. At least us have a vested interest in doing that work. And I think that we have got to throw away that idea that you can't be friends with your people. You know, just like winning new clients, I tell everyone at the end of the day, it's about whether or not after the meeting they want to have lunch or a drink or dinner with you. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the same is true with employees that you want to have that same effect. And um, I've got a lot to say about it, but we've got to do away with that idea that you can't be that. 
Well, I think, you know, one of the, the reasons why people would shy away from that is because of a word that you mentioned earlier, vulnerability. And you said transparency does not necessarily mean vulnerability, but to me, being friends with someone, truly friends with someone means they know all the things that are going on with my life, a lot of things. And that could be that I'm having a hard time with something personally. I've got some health issues. My marriage is not going very well. I'm having a hard time getting my kids to go to bed tonight or whatever. And if people on my team know that, then that shows weakness and maybe they don't want to listen to me anymore. I feel like that's, that's a lot of the fear, right? Yeah. And the truth is that they'll listen to you more. It was like, oh, thank goodness this person's human like me. And I, I mean, and once again, I, I was born with my heart in my sleeve. And so a lot of this stuff has come pretty naturally to me, but I've seen it at work and I've seen the results. And people will say, what's the ROI? It's like, I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you, I know what our foils look like. I know what our comparisons are. And we, people don't leave. And um, that's special. You know, the other side of it is we have to have it's not that we're taking down our own expectations. And you know, one of the concepts in the book, it's very tough to find the right person for a job. And uh, I think that we owe it to them, we owe it to ourselves. So why do we not do more freelance to hire scenarios where we actually freelance someone for six weeks before we take them on? And we try to do that in as many cases as possible to make sure that they've got the right work ethic, that they're the right culture fit. We have a 20% success rate with that. And then by the time they come on, we know that it's a real deal and we can take it to that next level. I think a lot of times we have bad employees or people that, you know, lazy employees or whatever you want to call it. And they're like, oh man, I don't want to be friends with these people. <laughs> you know, and it's like the first litmus should be, is this person friendable? You know, because yeah. that should be in your hiring process. And you know, it's a courtship. And that you you hear it, you know, hire slow and fire fast. And people will say, Chris, so how do you fire these millennials? It's like it doesn't take that much because usually it's a discussion around, are you happy? Because you don't look happy. You you don't look excited to come to work right. every day. Let's talk about it. What's what's changed? Oh, your purpose or your whatever has changed. Well, let's talk about where it is you should be. And I'll help open up those doors. And it's as easy as that. That's what a firing looks like. Yeah. And if you're often setting them free, right? If they're not happy and they really want to do something else, but they feel like they can't have that conversation or they can't make the move or they're a failure if they, if they leave too early and you're, you're almost giving them that, that opportunity. So you said something that I want to ask about the future of work because this is a topic that I'm in, I'm very interested in. I can tell by the smile on your face that you are as well. And you know, the, the world is changing all the time. Work is changing. And I think that you know, we hear about the the quote gig economy. Uh, I think people are moving more towards you know project based work versus being hired into a defined role in the future. You talked about this idea of freelance to hire, which I haven't heard people talk that much about. Where do you see all of this going? How does the the generational shift and what these people want change about the way things are done in the workplace in the next you know five ten years? And what do companies need to do to to really adapt to that? Well, I think it comes down to if you look at statistically what millennials and this next generation are looking for from employers, not leaders, from employers. Number one, it hasn't changed. It's it's a salary and benefits. It's money. So that's no different than any other generation. Number two is work culture. They want a culture where, once again, it has a lot of these things in it that that are you can't really put your finger on, but it's more than just kegs and ping pong tables. 
I allude to a company that built a massive building and put almost a billion dollars into a new building because they had a culture problem. And it's a leadership problem, not a culture problem. Yeah. Um, but the third piece is work flexibility. And if you aren't getting the questions yet as a leader, then you're about to. But cell phones and technology changed everything. And our expectations as leaders changed as we expect people to respond almost all the time around the clock. And I think it's made the world easier to work from almost anywhere. And so work flexibility is, I think, one of those things. And you look at what Zoom has done. I mean, look at what we're doing now. Yeah. I mean, if I saw you on the, on the street, I'd probably give you, a, I'd give you a high five. I use an example in the book. This is a couple of years ago. It was a friend of mine that grew up at Facebook, was one of the first employees at Facebook, then went on to Snapchat. And I was up at Snapchat right after they opened their New York office. And I was with a coworker. And I was like, Adam, dude, your seven-month-old daughter looks so cute. I give him a big hug and you know, we're catching up. And Christy, who is with us, she turns to us, she goes, How long have you guys known each other? I was like, Adam, how long has it been? Like five years? And he's like, Yeah. And I was like, Adam, we've never met in person. Yeah, first time. We've never even had a video chat. All of this was built on a closed Facebook group from way back in the day. Yeah. And I use that as an example of if that's the case, then think about what this is doing in terms of creating a connection and everything else. So I do think that the future of work is bright. I do think that things are changing faster than ever before. And I do think that if you fail to adapt, you will die. And if you were to ask me three years ago, what's it take to stay ahead? I would have said, digital media and social and like that's all going to come. Yeah. If you were to ask me today, it's actually all these other things that I think are so essential. It's leading with empathy. It's bringing empathy into the workplace as well as creating the connection and really driving with that. Everything else will follow that. And so, you know, Zoom and all of these things I think are changing things so rapidly around us that we don't necessarily put those changes into our corporations fast enough. So it's time to adapt. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, while technology is taking over more things that we do, AI, we hear about everything. Um, at the end of the day, it's still people that run everything. And you still have to connect with people. You know, The businesses still run by people. And those younger workers, like you said, they want great culture. They want work flexibility. Um, I heard someone, this was a chief learning officer who was I think probably in his 50s, who was speaking at a conference that was at last year, say something that struck with me. He said that uh, we shop at work and we work from home. So why is everyone still trying to you know, draw lines between the two? Because it, it's completely blurred, right? That's so, so good. You expect people to respond to emails at all times of day. And you know, I respond to emails while I'm at the gym. So why can't I take off in the middle of the day and go to the gym? Right. I don't have to be at my desk during, you know, defined hours. And I think that's the younger generation kind of expects that now, especially as we're working globally, digitally, virtually all over the place. Right. And I think once you have that taste of being untethered, you can indeed talk to this, but you can't untaste that. Yep. And I think we finally have a group of individuals that have grown up with that around them to a certain extent and expect that. And now it's now it's time for us to to meet those expectations. Are there, Chris, are there any other trends that you're, you're following around this that we haven't touched on so far? There's a lot. I mean, I think that... Considering we only have a few minutes left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think those are the big ones. You know, one of, one of the things I love to talk about is I do think that we live in a world where there's not enough accountability. I do think mm-hmm. that we live in a world where people don't take enough action. 
I think that everyone wants that instant gratification. They want the abs now without having to go to the, to the gym. And I think there are certain things that we need to be helping our people identify and work on. And if we think that that is just through the lens of business, then I think we're not doing what we need to be doing as leaders. Yeah. You know, every day I try to put in the work and take action and refocus my teams on the small things versus the champagne moments that end up in our feeds and on the gram. Yeah. And to retrain that both for myself and my people. And sometimes I'm guilty of not following that. But then the, that's where the magic happens. And one of my favorite things that I put in the book, but tends to have the greatest effect to people is turn your let's and answer it with a buy when. And there's no worse email than let's do this or let's do that. And then nothing happens. Right. Nothing happens. We love to talk. We hate to walk the talk. Yep. And so I always emphasize to people when I'm doing these speeches or media stuff, turn your let's into buy when and practice it the next time that you, after meeting someone, let's grab coffee or let's, let's grab a dinner. A lot of times that doesn't happen. So go to them and say, buy when? And they'll be like, next week? And it's like, great. Yeah. And you'll find that that accountability has a massive impact on your life. And it's something I think we as leaders need to instill in our people. Yeah. So turn your let's and answer it with a buy when. I love that. I don't remember that. Turn your let's into buy when. And I think whenever I'm putting stuff like that out there, if it's someone I really want to talk to, I always, I'll propose a date and time and say, let's do this. But if it's someone that I don't really want to talk to, they're like, yeah, let's catch up sometime. Don't really put a date on it. Yeah, that's awareness right there. And I'm going to take what you just talked about with, you know, helping people see the accountability and the action it takes to get certain places back to our very first discussion. We just started, we started out about comparison and the comparison trap. Because with the way social media is, we see everyone with their accomplishments, the real ones and the fake ones, right? You know, whether it's the job, the money, the car, the family, the vacation, the prestige, you know, how many books you've sold. I see where this is all going for you, Chris. And I know a few, I hope we stay friends because I know a few years from now, this is just going to be absolutely huge. And people are going to look at you and go, well, this guy's lucky. He's an overnight success without seeing all of the hard work that you put in. And I know I can see on your face the work you put in over the last 18 months and beyond to build this. And I think people are going to lose sight of that so often and they need to be reminded of it. You know, people in companies and outside of companies that like, hey, if you want that, you need to set a vision, build a plan and set goals and actually take action every week, every day. And eventually one day after 10, 20 years of hard work, you too can become an overnight success. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the amount of times, Andy... I, I was at a wedding this past weekend for a coworker. Guess what? I go to my coworkers, people that have been on my team's weddings. Nice. And uh, I flew down to Tampa. And once again, I showed up, right? I didn't necessarily want to be in Tampa uh, this time of year, but I was there and supported. And it was awesome. But uh, at that wedding, someone turned to me, who's known me for a while. They were like, of course, you've got a bestseller, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my immediate response was, you have no idea the hell of what this was and the stress of what this introduced and the amount of work. And, you know, I call it down to me calling my banker and saying that I needed a $200,000 short term interest, uh, you know, high interest loan to make ends meet to do this thing. 
And uh, I put it all on the line. And it's great talking to other entrepreneurs. I usually start yeah. that way. I'm like, guys, I'm one of you. All right. I put it all on the line. Yeah. And it's not like I have seen it back. You know, I'm, I'm still... It's going to pay off. But it will take time. But, you know, I think you. it's so important that as we're telling these things, like what's behind that gram, right? And what's behind that stuff, behind that bestseller that's being posted all over my Instagram yeah. is a lot of freaking hardship and risk. Yeah. Blood, sweat, and tears, right? Right. And so that's also what I mean by what it takes to be a leader because we got to put together the full picture and not just what's being presented. And I was very upfront with my team as I, I was writing this thing. And I tell everyone, you got to have side hustle. you know. And so for some people, that's side hustle. And I give them the time to do it because we've got to itch those passions. And yeah. you know, some people, it's nonprofits. Another person started a clothing company, etc. I was like, this is my side hustle. And now the side hustle has turned into my full-time hustle, which I just love that it's... And they saw me through it. They're like, what? Like this is crazy. So right. that's my quick tirade on uh, on that stuff. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. All right. The book is called The Millennial Whisperer by Chris Tuff. Chris, where can people go to get the book? And especially where can they go to connect with you and, and find out more about what you do? Yeah, the best way to connect with me is uh, probably on anything that hits my phone, not email. Uh, if you want to email me, it's chris at themillennialwhisperer.com. But good luck spelling all that correctly. <laughs> I'm at tough22 on Instagram or at millennialwhisperer. Uh, once again, millennialwhisperer is a very difficult word to spell. Millennials, two L's and two N's. And the best way to get the book is either at themillennialwhisperer.com, Amazon, uh, your local book retailer. We've also set up a, a site for listeners, which is themillennialwhisperer.com forward slash hot seat. Once again, two L's, two N's for millennial. And uh, we've actually got a free millennial leadership assessment for everyone listening as well as down... Uh, you can download the first chapter for free. And you'll, I think, get a taste of what the book uh, has in place. Awesome. Yeah. Is it themillennialwhisperer.com or millennialwhisperer.com? Themillennialwhisperer.com forward slash hot seat. And we'll put notes to all of that or links to those in the show notes. Uh, Chris, this has been awesome. I feel like we could talk forever about this stuff. Yeah. To cut it off. But thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all of your, your wisdom and experience and uh, your authenticity on all of this. Uh, so thanks again for coming on uh, the podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. I appreciate it. It was awesome. All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and 
connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.